Hello, Richard Lane here with the Lancet podcast on Friday, May the 4th. Delighted that we're joined by our North American senior editor, Faith McClellan, from our New York office. Hi, Faith. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm very well. Are you enjoying your stay in London? My goodness, it's fantastic. The weather has been amazing. You're having the most lovely sunny spring. We are having a very sunny spring, and some listeners may be aware that there's been some media coverage this week about exposure to the sun. Published online on Thursday, the 3rd of May, is a review looking at various sun exposure strategies and what we should do about increasing exposure to the sun as our planet seems to warm up. But Faith, let's talk through this week's issue, The Lancet, dated May the 5th to the 11th. And the lead editorial, which I believe you had something to do with, concerns smoking, a favourite topic of The Lancet, but this time it's smoking and employers. Yes, smoking in the workplace. The editorial was tied to a report by the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence here in the United Kingdom. The important thing about this report, uh, aside from its recommendations, is this is the first time that NICE, as we call it, has expanded. It has a new name, National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, and it has a a broader remit now where it's going beyond strictly clinical and NHS issues, National Health Service issues, to reach a broader audience. So this report is uh, quite important in that respect. It's also, of course, terribly important because of the topic. So smoking, uh, as you well know, as everybody knows, is uh, the number one cause of preventable disease and early death in most countries. And it costs a lot of money economically and in the workplace. This is what I was very interested in about the NICE report. Yeah, I saw a statistic in there which, which is interesting, and that is, correct me if I'm wrong, for every employee who smokes the business loses 33 hours of work a year. That's exactly right. And that's only time lost to illness, days out due to illness. It's not loss of productivity. It's not coverage for smokers by non-smokers when the smokers go out to take a break. It's strictly absenteeism. I thought that was a very large number. The report also says that if you estimate that about 25% of the population smokes, or about 21% in the U.S. A business with 250 employees could have as many as 63 people who are smokers. Now, if those 63 people were to quit smoking, according to this estimation, the yearly savings realized in that one business would be more than 13,000 pounds per year, or about $26,000. It's really a lot of money. So there's a clear economic incentive for employers to help their employees quit smoking. Yeah, I see there's a line in the editorial about what's good for business is good for health, which is kind of catchy. But what are we, or what is nice, because it's a nice report, if you like, or ourselves, saying that employers should be doing, actually spending money on quitting programs, counselling, nicotine patches, is that the idea? That is. There's good evidence, and the NICE report is not the first to show this, but there's good evidence that a variety of smoking cessation methods work. Interventions, usually by doctors, maybe only 5 to 10 minutes, sometimes by other health professionals, though. Nicotine replacement therapy, group counseling, individual counseling, telephone counseling, a whole variety of things have been shown to work. But yes, the report says that employers ought to either make these services available if that's feasible in their workplace, or at least let employees know what services are available. And I think the most striking recommendation is that it does say that employees ought to be able to avail themselves of smoking cessation services in the workplace without financial penalty. That's pretty radical, but of course... It would be best for the employee and for the business if that person were to quit smoking as a result of those interventions. Indeed. Thanks, Faith. And before we talk about some other parts of the journal, 
we should also mention another brief editorial, which is also linked to a comment, and this is looking at the World Bank. Yes, as I'm sure most of our listeners will have heard, there's been a great bit of turmoil at the World Bank because of its head, Paul Wolfowitz, who's had some difficulties recently (laughs) with some decisions that he had made a while ago involving the promotion and a very enormous pay rise for his girlfriend, who is a bank employee, was a bank employee. So Mr. Wolfowitz's credibility and his ability to lead the bank, which deals with very serious issues of poverty and development, has been seriously undermined by this controversy. And there have been lots of calls for his resignation, including, I think, by us. Yes, indeed. The problem here is, though, aside from Mr. Wolfowitz himself, the problem is this incident, which is dragging on and receiving a huge amount of press and is involving lots of employees at the bank and lawyers and so forth, is that it's really distracting the World Bank from its very important mission of helping the world's poorest people. Moving on through the journal, a couple of research items I'd like to point out. There's a study that looks very UK-based, or very London-based even, and it's to do with screening for tuberculosis in an area of London called Hackney. But it's actually linked to a comment which talks about how generalisable possibly this study might be. And quite simply, it's saying that in areas of high immigration, um, it's probably justifiable to have screening for TB to improve detection and, and treatment of the disease. And something else I picked up on, Faith, maybe you want to chip in here too, is this remarkably simple-looking study, really, about using talc, as in talcum powder, for, for pleurodesis, which is when you get this, um, the, the pleural cavity fills up with um, fluid when you have, for example, lung cancer. Now, treatment with talc itself isn't new. The article says how it was first used back in 1935. But there's talc, and there's talc, isn't there? Yes, indeed. Just one correction, Richard, also. The, the pleurodesis is the procedure, apparently. This is the agent, the chemical pleurodesis agent, the talc is, for patients who have malignant pleural effusion. So, but this was fascinating. I didn't know very much about this until I saw this article. But apparently the size of the talc is extremely important to avoid adverse effects. And what these investigators did, their null hypothesis really was to, was to suggest that large particle talc would not result in any acute respiratory distre- distress syndrome among the people who took part in the study. There were 558 participants. There has been concern, as I say, that large particles are, are associated with acute respiratory distress syndrome. And the result was very positive, wasn't it? Indeed, uh, it really was. And I believe the talc is administered by an atomizer, so it's, it's, a, it's administered as a powder. But no patients who received this treatment developed the acute respiratory dis- distress syndrome, which was the most feared complication. Indeed, and talking of acute respiratory distress syndrome, that is the topic of the review in this week's issue two, which is also worth a read. Faith, we'll just finish up with the case report. Following up last week's case report, which was to do with a female nightclubber using a drug called BZP, or BZP, I think you'd say. Yes, we would. (laughs) Sorry about that. This week, we're actually looking at cocaine use and its association with cardiac problems. This is increasingly the case. For a while, cocaine has been perceived as, yes, an expensive, but but a relatively safe drug among many of its users. But this Mm. is an example, clearly, where cocaine use was associated with cardiac problems. It's about an Italian guy coming in, I think. That's correct. And uh, what was the deal there? He was 31 years old, and he presented to an emergency department in Siena with fatigue and dyspnea and chest pain. He did admit they had long-standing, he used cocaine, for a good long while. And 
I think the nice thing here is, if you like, is that he was given counselling, which meant he was able to stop using cocaine, and as a result, his cardiac symptoms dramatically improved. That's correct. Well, that's a quick canter through this week's issue. Faith, thanks very much for joining. Great to see you again. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.